This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Uh, I just uh, like to say that, uh, first of all, thank, thanks to Jake and Aaron for uh, putting together this uh, interesting, exciting event. Uh, I'm all for events. <laughs> Um, but I wanted to just take one moment to make mention. You may, some of you may have noticed that uh, there was a funeral on uh, campus today, and uh, it was uh, the, a funeral for the former president of Illinois University, Ed Dobbin, who um, was a very, very important man in the history of both the philosophy department. Uh, in the religious studies department and of uh, theology department and of uh, the university as a whole. He, uh, the way I like to put it was when he became president, you, you could tell somebody was at the wheel. And he really made a deep, lasting, and, and generous difference for uh, the university. He, he got the, uh, he, he was, he, he was the guy who basically said to all the people who had to make the decision with a wink, we want that PhD program in philosophy that, you're, that they're talking about. And uh, when uh, Mike Scanlon and I went to him and said, listen, we'd like to have a series of uh, conferences in which we bring Jacques Derrida to uh, campus to talk about the Augustine and grace and gift and whatever. <laughs> He basically told, gave the wink to the people who control the purse strings to uh, let let that happen. Um, he he made uh, an enormous difference in the life of the university and of uh, the the mission of the university as it's focused in philosophy and theology. And he did not construe that mission narrowly. He uh, had a, a, a generous spirit of uh, in making Villanova a place where thinking uh, philosophically and theologically is enjoys pride of place. So we uh, mourn his passing and thank uh, God for his uh, the gift of his presidency. Um, Okay, so uh, I had two papers ready to go for today, and I was waiting to see how things went yesterday uh, to decide which one to use, and I decided on the way home that neither of them was any good. Um, so I thought I'd just tell you a little bit about myself and my family. Um, so what I did this morning was get up very early and get the coffee pot going and come up with uh, another set of remarks that um, I think will fit into fit into what we were saying yesterday, fit into the discussion we had last night, and I think will we'll fit nicely with what, what Merrill uh, was just saying. And um, I think we'll give you a... Uh, let's say a somewhat different picture of um, Jacques Derrida. Uh, I, I would say Merrill's picture is a little narrow, and in some cases exegetically incorrect. Um, and 
we'll make we certainly can have a discussion about this. But about Heidegger, it was more uh, complicated with Heidegger. Uh, I, I agree with with some of what Merrill's saying about Heidegger, and, but again, I think there's a, another more generous way to look at what Heidegger was, was doing. So, uh, but uh, I don't have, I, I don't. I, maybe that can come up in the discussion. Alright, so what I'm going to talk, talk about is, the title of the topic is The Deconstruction of Religion. Okay? So I'll get to the end of religion by talking about the deconstruction of religion. That is, I'm going to take uh, postmodernism to mean, um, I'm, go I'm going to, postmodernism is a sort of cultural term and it's a much wider term and it means a lot of other things besides uh, deconstruction. Deconstruction is one version of, of postmodern theory, but postmodernism is a lot more than just postmodern theory, and it's a lot more than just this version. But this is the version of it that makes the most sense to me, and I also think of all of the all, all the varieties of postmodern theory. This is the one that has the most bearing on uh, religion. It's the most it's the most interesting for religion. Now, so let's start. Um, well, I'm going to start with the last question we had in the discussion last night, when the very last thing was, does, what does postmodernism have to affirm? Um, so let's, let's talk about that. Um, first of all, uh, deconstruction, postmodern theory generally, deconstruction in particular, begins with the presupposition that all of our beliefs and practices, all of our institutions and traditions, all of our arts and sciences are constructed. That is, they are forged, which is a great word, right? Because it means both simultaneously to shape something, but it also suggests it may be a little phony. It could be a forgery. It suggests a little fact and fiction. They are forged or formed, or as Husserl would, would say, they're constituted by a play of forces. Husserl thought they were constituted by pure consciousness, and all the post-Husserlians break with that, and what we call hermeneutics and hermeneutic phenomenology and deconstruction is, is all post-Husserlian. It's not that they're forged by, by a kind of pure neo-Kantian consciousness, but they're forged by system, systems of traces and systems of forces. So they're, they, if there's a transcendental constitution, the transcendental subject is not a transcendental subject, it's a, an anonymous field of interrelated forces and plays of differences in which things get formed or forged or constituted. And what sorts of forces? Well, the, the most obvious one, and the one that uh, these people paid the most attention to when they first began to develop postmodern theory in the, in the 60s and the 70s, was language. And so it had a relationship back to Saussure and the play of differences in Saussure. So when Saussure talked about the play of differences, he wasn't talking about screwing around, playing, shooting them up, you know, and watching. watching that was a basketball image, by the way. <laughs> he's not talking about, about knocking, kicking a ball around. He's talking about the, diff, the discernible play of difference between ring and king and sing. It's the difference or the space between the, sound, the phonic, the, the phonic differences that constitute uh, the, the identity of the words. 
But uh, the play of differences is a lot more than just uh, linguistic. It's also uh, historical and social and political hierarchical systems are a comparable play of differences. Um, it's embodied, so you have gender differences and uh, uh, all of all the differences rooted in, in affectivity. It, it's all of these different kinds of what we call matrices or webs, which produce, let's say, and I'm going to use this phrase frequently, relatively stable effects. effects of this play. So a meaning, for example, is a relatively stable effect of a play of linguistic differences, rules of grammar, rules of usage, uh, phonic differences, semantic differences, etc. It produces relatively stable effects. And all of that, that whole thing that I just went through is what Derrida meant by the neologism différence. Okay. All that spatial, uh, that, that spacing. Okay. Webbing, inter, internetting, interwebbing. Okay. But whatever is constituted or constructed or formed in those systems, whatever is constructed by those systems is deconstructible. And just the way that Aristotle said, whatever comes to be can pass away. Whatever is constructed is, is intrinsically, inherently deconstructible. And if anything is undeconstructible, that's because it hasn't been constructed yet. So what does deconstructible mean? Well, if we're talking about relatively stable unities of meaning, it means destabilizability. Okay. Now, there's two different ways to. Well, there's a lot of different ways we could describe the de, uh, destabilizability. But let me just single out two. On the one hand, it means things are reformable or transformable. And then I'm using the language of form. And that's the language that Malibu uses, and that's why Jeff yesterday was talking about plasticity, the plasticity of form. And that's a language which is ultimately Aristotle's. Okay? You think in terms of, the, of, the, of transformations, of informations, of reinforming. So you got the language of Aristotle, of form, and, and therefore of plasticity. And the other way to think about destabilizability is to think in terms of things being inventable, reinventable, or preventable. And now I'm using the language of event. And event is the more postmodern language of Heidegger and Derrida and uh, Deleuze and Badger. It's it's uh, uh, the it's more it's the language of in postmodern theory. Right? The debate, one debate between Malibu and, and Derrida is is the relative priority of difference or eventive language and form. I would say, 
in Derrida I would say, form is an effect of difference. Difference is simply a tr an anonymous transcendental field in which certain effects are produced, one of which is form. I don't think form, I don't think difference is a function of form, I think form is a function of difference. Uh, plasticity is an effect of difference, I would say, so, but that's something that we can, and that also has, goes back to, this, to the notion of God, where the plasticity of God is process theology. Right? That's the difference between God as it's an old argument that the metaphysical society of America, if it's if it's still there, is it still there? If it is, there's a sea of gray heads <laughs> debating whether God is octus or oxio. Is God pure act, therefore eternal and changing, or is God activity? That's, I think, that's what I think the plasticity of God, part of the argument about the plasticity of God would mean. Right. However, whether you think of it in terms of event or form, either way you do it, deconstruction and deconstructability doesn't have to do with simple destruction. Which doesn't mean the things that are deconstructible won't be destroyed or can't be destroyed. The expression creative destruction wouldn't be bad except that it's the definition of capitalism and I'm not sure I want to uh, use it. So let's say it's not completely bad. So a construction is a relatively stable formation or a relatively stable unity. Listen to that. It's a relatively stable unity. Unity is not first. Unity is an effect. That's why Derrida will describe difference, the play of differences, as a non-originary origin or a non-unitary origin. At the beginning is not unity, like the Neoplatonisms, but the play of differences which produces the sparks or the effects of these relatively stable unities of, of meaning or where. Any, not, not simply meaning, but a practice, an institution, uh, a work of art. That's why I'd rather, I like to say that in hermeneutics, things don't have, don't so much have a meaning, they have a history. If you want their meaning, you're freezing them. It's a freeze frame. It's like a frozen waterfall. You can, the meaning sort of gives it to you in a still, but that still belongs to a process. It belongs to uh, this unstable matrix which is generating these effects. So a deconstruction is a destabilization, for better or for worse. Because so sometimes you regret the things you destabilize and you wish you hadn't. It holds a promise. Destabilization holds a promise. But it could be a disaster. If you're waiting for the day of the Jubilee, it may be the worst day of your life. It may turn out to be a day you should have stayed in bed. Now, this process of destabilization goes on whether we like it or not. Right? 
It's, it, it's, it's happening. It's, it's transpiring with, with or without our consent. Therefore, it's a process that's going on in the things themselves. It's, it's, the, it's the very movement of time itself. That's why Derrida will refer to it as its auto-deconstruction. There's a, there's a deconstruction going on whether we like it or not. There's a, there's a, de, a destabilization process, a shift, a series of transformations, a series of reinventions going on all the time, with or without our consent. But it is also something, it's not only that, it is also something in which we can involve ourselves. That in, in which we can participate. So we can try to prevent the event. We can pr try to uh, stop it. Or we can try to promote the event or let the event happen to open up aleatory series which expose the, the system to incoming and unforeseen effects. The attempt to try to prevent the event, and sometimes you should try to prevent events. There's no, I'm not saying you shouldn't. The, the, the attempt to try to prevent the event is, you could say, conservative. It's, it's reactive and reactionary and regressive but sometimes it's just conservative. The attempt to promote the event is proactive, progressive. Now, the expression postmodernism, I said, is, I always like to say, postmodernism is a word that I use when I want to draw a crowd. Right? It's not the best technical word we could use. The more technical word, the, 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 the better word, is post-structuralism. And that goes back to an argument about these systems that we're talking about and their, 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 their shifts, their, the, the changes that take place in them. Um, it had to do with a debate about whether all the changes that go on in the system are rule-governed. or whether the systems are open. The post-structuralists, otherwise known as uh, the 68ers, Deleuze and Derrida and all these guys that came to be, who stole the thunder from the Germans and shifted the philosophical scene from uh, Germany to uh, Paris. The, the 68ers, said these systems are open-ended so that knowing the rules of the system is not an, that if you know the rules of the system and you know how to combine the elements of the system you can in principle predict everything every effect that the system will produce the post-structuralist said no 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 language doesn't work like that and one, these systems are open-ended capable of producing unforeseeable unprogrammable fantastically prescient word to use this was the 60s before pro computer programming was uh, you know the coin of the day the currency of the day they were arguing about programmability writing codes 
The structuralists were saying a deep code is written in either in our brain, if you were a materialist like Chomsky, or in consciousness, if you had a more idealist theory. Um, but either way, you got the same result. That there are deep, there's a deep grammar by which the production of language is guided, which produces effects that are in principle rule governed. Derrida and the post-structuralists argued against that, and one of the best examples was a, a famous discussion that went on about metaphors. What's a metaphor? A metaphor is an attempt to break the rules of language ever so precisely. To, to push them to the point that they shock you, but if you push them too far, then they, they don't shock you, they're just, they just misfire. So metaphoricity, the metaphoricity of language and the history of language indicates that it's an open system capable of producing new effects. And what's the very hardest thing that people doing AI work right now have? It's producing unprogrammable effects. They need programs to produce unprogrammable effects. Don't underestimate them. They're working on it. Now, philosophy and theology are concerned with this question of the way in which we involve ourselves, are drawn into um, allowing these uh, uh, novel effects to occur. Apart, on, the one hand, on the one hand, changes will occur whether we like it or not. On the other hand, we, we participate in that process. And the task is always to find the optimal mix of conserving and Pushing to the and pushing the envelope, conserving and promoting the event. Too much order, and the system dies. Too much disorder, and the system just simply volatilizes, just dissipates. It's, it's pure madness or chaos. You could, there is such a thing as too many events. So what you need is to invoke a, a magnificent word of James Joyce. What you need is chaosmos. Not just cosmos, not just chaos, but chaosmos. That is to say, states are in a, that are in systems that are in a, mac, a state of optimal, optimal disequilibrium. Right? Too much equilibrium and it closed down. Now. So what we're interested in is the process of destabilization in which we ourselves can have a hand, in which we participate. And we want to know by what is that process, which, I'm, which we call reconstruction, ordered or commanded? To what is it loyal? To what does it swear an oath? Or to take up Terence's excellent question last night, to what authority does it answer? What authority does it recognize? What call, to what call does it respond? What does it affirm? 
Darren has an answer. He says, well, he gave a bunch of answers to this, but one of his best, one of the ones I like the most is the unconditional. The unconditional is what moves the deconstructive process in which we have a hand. Because as Marov was saying when he quoted that line from Derrida, language has already started with us. Right? It's not waiting for us to get into this process. And it will keep on shifting with or without creative poets and without Shakespeare's and without other geniuses. It's, it's running. It runs in the impersonal third person. It runs. The conditional is what has been constructed under the, under the conditions of language and history and socio-political structures and the, system, the, the systems I described. The, the conditional is what exists in space and time. What is actual? What is factual? What is real? What is historical? The unconditional. Ah, there's the rub. What's that? It's what we're dreaming of. What we're praying for. What we desire. What we affirm. What we're loyal to what we're commanded by, what we're responding to. And to borrow a Heideggerian formulation that Derrida is fond of, it's a, it's a, it's a complex of callings. What is calling to us? What is being called for? What are we asked to recall? I'm, I mean, I have chapter and verse for this, and I, I, I've documented it at some length, but I am making salient and underlying a religious tonality. Right? That's what some deconstructionists abhor. They abhor vacuums and the prayers and tears of Shabbat Derrida. They do not want to hear this part of it. They say this is deconstruction is just a descriptive enterprise. Nonsense. It is all about having a vocation, a call, a provocation, an evocation. And these are, uh, I think, uh, structures with a religious tonality, a biblical tonality in particular, because this word religion we have learned to put into quotation marks, but a, a biblical one, mostly Jewish, but since we are all spiritually Jews and being Christian, it's, it's with us too. It's with Christians too. It's also very much like 
or at least it fits together sort of neatly. When I was listening to Jeff last night invoking Tillich on the Protestant principle, it fits with the Protestant principle pretty nicely because it's saying no finite relative condition, conditional conditioned construction is ever adequate to the unconditional, the un deconstructible. So the undeconstructible is a call that we can never adequately answer. It is a call which it is to which we are always already responding. It is not our doing. It's what's being done to us. Like waking up with a start in the middle of the night. What, what was that? Was that a dream? It is not a projection. It's not Feuerbach. It's the opposite of Feuerbach. It's a projectile coming at me which puts me in the accusative, in the, on the receiving end, on the me voici. It's a projectile, it's not in my head, it's a projectile, projectile headed at my head. So, now, think about constructions. And all the time now, remember, where does religion fit in all this? Because that's where I'm going. Think about constructions which are relatively stable unities of meaning or of whatever they are. Relatively stable traditions, relatively stable institutions, relatively stable um, artist, uh, works of art or artistic movements. Think of them as exposed on two ends. Toward the future by the what by the call of what they are being called to. And Derrida calls that the promise. What is the promise that is getting itself promised in the middle voice? In a word like say democracy. What is getting itself promised by that word? And it's exposed on the other end to a primordial memory, which Derrida also will call the structure of mourning. It is destabilized by a promise which it has not fulfilled, by a memory that it cannot recall. It trembles between under the, 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 that call and that recall, that promise and that memory. It is, there I will say, spooked by the arrivant. They're like old Scrooge standing on his bed all a tremble by the spook or spirit of the Christmas to come and the spook of the spirit of Christmas past, and the spook of the spirit who is 
who woke him up from a sound sleep. And so Derrida says, this is, uh, this is my ontology. His ontology, not his ontology. Being. If Heidegger were capable of making a joke, Heidegger would have said, being is spooked by time. Being is destabilized, for better or for worse, by time. Being is made, put it in a more Augustinian way, and you would say, being is made restless by time. And we are the restless hearts. In creatum est cornustum, we are the restless hearts. The way I like to put it is to, is to start. I like to say, the unconditional does not exist. It insists. It calls. And existence is what is called for. We are on the receiving end, in the accusative, me voici of a call which is visited upon us, which we didn't ask for. To which we can respond, or, how did you put it, do our best, manage not to notice it, repress it, forget it, ignore it, just walk away. That's the, that, that call is, is the, the unconditional is the call by which we are constituted as the beings that we are, by which we are suited or haunted or in more uh, uh, pious language inspired. Or we can fall into the sickness unto death, into despair, which is to ignore our spirit, to ignore our, our diamond, to ignore the spook. We are called upon to fill up what is lacking in the body of the call, which makes of us in the ontology beings of hope in the promise, beings of faith in something unforeseeable, which is not a mere belief, because a belief has content and determination and, and a certain amount of fixity, whereas this kind of hope is a hope in something haunting and disturbing and destabilizing. Hope and faith and love of something undeconstructible, unconditional. In theology, we call hope and faith and love the theological virtues. And we contrast them to the cardinal virtues, and as you know from the Latin 
uh, that the word cardinal comes from the Latin cardo, meaning hinges. So we could say the card if the cardinal virtues are the virtues of the hinged, then hope and faith and love are the virtues of the unhinged. And thus scooped, but destabilized. I would say the cardinal virtues are the virtues that we use by me are the virtues by, with which we negotiate among the conditional. These other virtues, these the theological virtues, are the virtues by which we are exposed to the unconditional. Derrida will say, he doesn't put it in terms of the cardinal virtues, but the cardinal virtues are the virtues that deal with the possible. The theological ones with the impossible because these clusters of effects, these relatively stable horizons of, of uh, these relatively stable meanings, institutions, processes, uh, histories, traditions, form a horizon of possibility for us. We, we live and move and have our being within relatively stable horizons. But what interests deconstruction is the interruption of those relatively stable horizons. That is to say, what interest deconstruction is not what appears to be possible within the horizons of understanding that we accumulate and constitute, but what interrupts them, shatters them, makes them new in a way that we didn't see coming. The unconditional is infinite. Not because it is an infinite being or existent. The unconditional is not a finite being or an infinite being. It's not a being. It's not an existent. It does not exist. It calls. It is infinite in the sense of infinitival. It is infinite in the, in the sense that it is unfinished. It is always, already, structurally unfinished. Always, already, to come. Infinitival. Grammatologically, the unconditional is an infinitive. The unconditional X is always the X to come which haunts any present form of X. Whatever has come is actual, present, finite. And exposed to the solicitation of the to come. Literally, solicitation from the Latin solicitare, meaning to shake or tremble. The unconditional is the possible, the or the conditional is the possible and the horizon of possibility and the foreseeability. The unconditional is the infinite, infinitival, impossible, of which we 
are expected to be the finite conjugations, the response, the, act, the actualization. Well, like what? Like what's an example of the unconditional? Well, the most famous, well, it's the most famous, but one of the most famous, certainly the first most, and most, the, the first time Derrida talked about this in a way that was uh, 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 caught everybody's attention, let's say, was when uh, Jusil Cornell uh, at Cordoza Law School um, invited him to give a uh, talk to the law faculty that could on justice and deconstruction. And as he said, uh, you know, this was, uh, he said, you are, uh, you are trying to intimidate me. Uh, you, you think uh, what can deconstruction have to say about justice? This is a, this is a challenge. <laughs> and he there made this, uh, gave this very lovely and also I think very, very hermeneutical interpretation of the distinction between justice and the law. And he said, and he's, he goes back, he's going back to a line from Pascal about the, uh, the force of law. And so he says, justice is what we desire, what we affirm, what we uh, love with uh, desire beyond desire. But uh, the law is what exists. So justice calls, justice is what we, what, we, what we desire, what, what's calling upon us. The law is what exists. And so we speak of the strong arm of the law or the force of law. The law is what's actual. It has real force. It's a construction. It's got an, an army or a police or an institution. It may or may not be just. Whereas justice has not the wherewithal to lay down its head. Justice does not exist. Justice. We yearn for justice. We weep over justice. Justice. overtakes us, surprises us, interrupts us, won't let us rest, won't ever let us say this is just, except momentarily. And so uh, Pascal says justice, justice is a weak force. It's a call. And Pascal says since we cannot make justice strong, we must make what is strong just. So we must make the law just. And we must do that again and again and again and again because we're never going to do it. Right? And so whenever we make a law that belongs to the demands of justice, that we make the law repealable recallable, reformable, reinventable, transformable. Whatever exists has to be 
plastic. It has to be transformable. It has to be reinventable. Otherwise, it'll be a monster. The law will be a monster unless it is unless it is destabilizable, unless it is uh, porous to the demands of justice. And Derrida gave you other examples like that. I just uh, I do that one very quickly, but uh, give other examples like that, like hospitality. What is what is hospitality in this unconditional sense? It is welcoming the stranger. Well, it's a risky business. Hmm? Welcome the state, the stranger unconditionally. The knock on the on your door in the middle of the night, maybe a, a stranger in need of a cup of cold water. Or it may be trouble. And we have to negotiate the distance between those two things. Right? You can't make a rule and always open the door to the coming of the other, because that's just another rule. Deconstruction is not about rules, it's about unprogrammability and how to, ne how to negotiate with the unprogrammable. The same thing is true of forgiveness. Unconditional forgiveness versus forgiveness under certain conditions. But if you forgive under enough conditions, it's not much forgiving. It's more like paying off a debt. The banks talk about forgiving your mortgage, but they only forgive your mortgage after you've paid it off. <laughs> they, 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 and when banks come around giving, offering gifts, watch out! Banks don't give gifts. And they don't forgive, unless you already have met all the conditions of the, the debt. So Derrida did a series of very interesting, brilliant uh, analyses of negotiating the difference between the conditional and the unconditional. Because we live in the distance between the two, right? If we simply lived in actuality and reality, we would be contracted into the present. But the fullness of our, the, or the uh, ampli ambience or amplitude of our existence is its exposure to the past and the future, and the, the absolute past and the future that's coming. So we're, we're constantly dealing with spooks. So what about religion? Where does religion uh, fit in this uh, situation? Well, religion is clearly on the side of a construction. As Merrill said, according to Bart, religion is something we've done, revelation is something God does. That needs qualification, I would say, but um, there's something to it. Religion is clearly on the side of a construction. It, what is religion? It's a, it's a relatively stable effect. It's a conditioned, conditional actuality. And in, in particular, as we've noticed in the last uh, 25 or 35 years of scholarship in the study of religion, it is a word with a loaded history. And it is deeply embedded in colonialism. It's a category we came up with in order to justify the distinction between Europeans who have the true religion and uh, indigenous people who are pagans who don't have the true religion and then the Pope issued a very famous encyclical right around the time of the discovery of the new world um, 
declaring that non-baptized Christians have no right to land to own land. So go get them. So the word religion is, is loaded with uh, colonial power. It's also a modernist term, and it has to do with this, putting religion in a box and separating it from the public order. So it's an enlightenment word. In the Middle Ages, it meant you took the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. You either did or you didn't. If you took the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, you were a religious priest, and if you were did not, you were a secular priest. You, were a, you weren't a lay person, you were a secular priest uh, if you were ordained. So you could be a secular priest, and you could be a secular layman, or you could be a religious priest, or you could be a... Well, I guess a or, or, or you could be religious, but not ordained. Function in a completely different way than it did in modernity. What is religion? First and foremost, it's a, it's a, it's a constituted effect. It's a word that we use with much trepidation with respect to people outside the Western tradition. It doesn't. I was in the Middle East one time, and uh, they were. I had a translator, and every time I said religion, had, had, uh, had translated into Arabic, and I said, "What's the word you're using?" And he told me, and uh, I said, "What's it mean?" He said, "I don't know what it means. It means religion." And I said, "Well, yeah, religion is a Latin word. What's it mean?" Um, and it ended up it meant something having to do with law. Anyway, granting all that, what does this relatively stable unity of meaning that we use in Christian Latin called religion, what does that, where does that fit into this, the schema? Um, well, I'm saying this structure of the unconditional affects visits itself upon all, every sphere of uh, activity. It is found in art. There is an unconditional affirmation going on and, and a response and a, a uh, answering to a call that is going on in the work of art. It is going on in ethics and politics, and I think in politics, in science. Since I'm saying science doesn't think, it's not very thoughtful. Science thinks deeply and profoundly about the mystery which we ourselves are. Each of, which, each of those activities is a passion, a desire, an affirmation. And it is guided by a logic. I'm going to call it a logic, but I'd, I'd prefer to call it a poetics, but for the time being, I'm going to call it, secondly, I'll call it the logic of the unconditional, the logic of the undeconstructible, the logic of the impossible, which underlies all these things, including religion. So religion is one of these ways in which the affirmation of the undeconstructible, of the unconditional, is realized. It's one response. It's not like the unconditional is a universal essence of these are art, religion, science, etc., are species of it. The unconditional is a is a is a prompting 
to which we can respond in a variety of, of ways. One of which is religion. The logic of the unconditional, therefore, is a kind of proto-religion, because it's marked by this uh, hope and faith and love that I described earlier. The existence of a separate space for religion as a special form of cultural life is, the Stoic says, a sign of our alienation. Remarkable observation by Tully. It's a sign of our alienation. In the heavenly Jerusalem, there is no temple. We set it off as a separate activity. Why? Well, because religion is the Sabbath of life, Hegel says. We need a point where we stop everything else and think. We need a, we need a sacred space. We need to suspend the, the preoccupations of everyday existence for a moment to come back to ourselves who stand quorum dea quorum I don't know what the Latin for unconditional and I particularly don't know what it is in the dative um, before the unconditional before God So I make a distinction then between a proto-religion, which is the logic of the unconditional, and the existing religious traditions that we find in reality all around us, with this word religion. What, what goes on in non-Western worlds is will be, uh, I'll just forget, forget about that for the time being. Make a distinction between this proto-religion and the religious activities we find in the normal sense, the accepted sense of the, in normal usage. I'm making a distinction, therefore, between a radical theology and a confessional, historical theology. Theologies in the plural, really where the confessional theologies are sort of special, are local, localizations of, localizations and concentrations of a more elemental call, a more, more elemental event. So in that sense, religion, I'm, I'm talking about one end of religion, I'm, by drawing a border, or limit between it and this other uh, logic of the unconditional, which I'm calling a proto-religion. This proto-religion is or should be everywhere. Where would you find it? You would find it anywhere, wherever there are human beings who have a concern for one another, for their world, and for their own, own being. This proto-religion would be found inside what we call religion in, in the strict sense, or outside it, with it or without it. So that the distinction between theist and atheist is a, a secondary distinction. It 
it has it has force in other contexts, but it is undermined by literally mind under, dug under, by this logic of the unconditional, this proto or more radical religion. That's why it's possible for someone like uh, Jacques Derrida to write a book like Circumfession, Circumfession, where he inhabits St. Augustine's Confessions, and in which text he says he rightly passes for an atheist. Up, up there on the level of the confessional religions, he's an atheist. By the standards of the local rabbi, he's an atheist. But on this other level uh, of this proto-religion, the distinction doesn't obtain. The distinction is between the conditional and the unconditional, between answering the call and ignoring or repressing it. What does he do with uh, Augustine? This is, this is why Father Dabin was just beaming uh, in 2001 when we had this conference, this fire, about entitled Confessions in the Plural, in which we asked Jacques to come here and talk about the St. and his book. I won't say his book on St. Augustine, but I would say his quasi-Augustinian, slightly atheistic repetition of Augustine. Augustine, he says, is always ahead of me, or I'm always trying to catch up to Augustine, to all of the great philosophers. Does he launch what Merrill calls an assault on the, on on the confessions? Anything but. What does he do? He tries to inhabit it, to repeat it, to reinvent it, to restage it, to replay it. Why? Because it's a compatriot of his. Literally, they're both from Algeria or ancient Numidia. They're both Algerians, North Africans, who made it big in the Big Apple in Rome or Milan or Paris. But more importantly, on this level of what I'm calling proto-religion or radical theology, they are compatriots in responding to the call of the unconditional. And the key to understanding the book is to find a non-invidious way of comparing the difference between the two. Like saying one's an atheist and the other one's a theist, and one has a phony religion and the other one has a true religion, and one is uh, producing a mime and the other one is the real thing. Invidious distinctions that miss the structure of the call, the logic of the, logic of the unconditional. He tries to repeat it, reinvent it, restage it, replay it in a different context. The history, the things don't have a meaning, they have a history. The event 
is continuously being reinvented. The continuity of a tradition is the continuity of a series of recognizable responses to an underlying event. The history of Christianity is the history of a series of recognizable responses to the memory of Jesus and the promise of Jesus. And every tradition, all traditions work like that. Consequently, when you go through circumfession, you find corresponding structures of prayer and God and confession and faith. Faith in the unconditional, not belief in some confessional body of uh, assertions. Or, and, and practices, but a underlying faith in the unconditional. Prayer. Can you pray to an unknown God? Can you pray without knowing whether there's anybody there to hear your prayer? I would say, that would, not only can you, but that would be the best prayer of all. The prayer of someone who hasn't. We begin a prayer by saying, Lord, hear our prayers. Lord, please be out there. Let there be somebody out there. Jean-Luc Chrétien says, uh, prayer is a wounded word. La parole blessée. Wounded word. What more wounded word than to know, not know, to whom you're praying and whether someone is there to hear it. We said to Derrida, which was this whole thing, the confession is structured like a prayer. It's not structured like an autobiography. It's structured literally like a prayer. And we, every time I would get Derrida, Derrida in front of the crowd, I would say, to whom are you praying? And he was like, he said, well, I mean, if, I, if I was that, uh, I, would, I would know everything. A structure of confession. Confessing my circumcut condition. Circumfession, circumcision. There's a long, there's a story behind that word too. God. To which corresponds in circumfession the possibility of the impossible. The possibility of the impossible. One of one of our favorite names for God is to say, with God, all things are possible. When Mary says, uh-uh, this is impossible, the archangel says, with God, all things are possible. So the structure of the impossible is among our most elemental religious, proto-religious structures. So, the end. Where am I in terms of time? I, I wasn't even paying attention. I should have. Yikes. Okay, I'll wrap it up. <laughs> the ends, uh, the plural. I suggested to Jake we put an S on end, but it was too late. It had gone out. The ends of religion. I would say, uh, I would speak of the ends of religion in two senses. The first is. Um, the affirmation of the in, in, in unconditional seems to me, or, or I'd make two points about it anyway, the, unconditional, the affirmation of the unconditional seems to me irreducible. 
as I say, that this notion of the, of the proto-religious. I cannot imagine what we would call human existence in any recognizable form without this. I don't know what it would be like. Um, I would say in, in, in the proto-religious has a future because it's, it is about, it is futurity itself. It's being futural. The end of that religion would be a disaster. Does that mean it won't happen? No. I think it's looming. Where? Among the programmers. Hmm? Deconstruction is all about unprogrammability. The programmers. You know this movie Transcendence, uploading consciousness into a, into a disc. You know, and, or like the, the, the what is it in Battlestar Galactica? The Cleons? Is that what they're called? Cleons? Is over there? Silence. 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 The they upload their consciousness into a computer and download it into a shiny new robot body. And then they have resurrection ship nearby in case they run into a magnet or get blown up or something. Then they have to download them. They got, a, they got a backup copy. Right? It's actually an extremely theological series, Battlestar Galactic, if, you, if you've ever watched it. Because these robots are the theists. The, the, the biological humans are, are polytheists at this point. It's very interesting. But what's, what's the, what you call transhumanism, the project of transhumanism or posthumanism, is the project of the absolutely programmable. The absolutely programmable. At that point, you would have the end of the proto-religion, proto and that would be the end of the human, I would say. So there's one sense of end. Second sense of end is the end uh, of, in the end of the sense, in the sense of the limit of, of border of religion. And then that's, in, in one sense, I could say, well, that's what I'm really interested in. I'm interested in the limit between the confessional theological tradition, the confessional religious practices, beliefs, practices, and this proto-religion. And in the insistence of God, I describe them as a chiasmic intertwining. The, in, the, 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 this proto-religious impulse insists itself into and disturbs and provokes the confessional traditions. And while the confessional traditions give body and existence to the call, because the insist insistence does not exist, it, 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 it calls, it is our response which creates, which gives it body, which gives it existence. And so I would say, uh, in this sort of chiasmic interlacing of the one with the other, that the, 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 this proto-religion haunts confessional traditions. And because why? Because these confessional traditions are inhabited by, by deep structured events, by events which are their deep structure. And every once in a while, they burn right through. And then that's when the confessional theologian loses his job. Because he says it. He's got two choices. He says it or he doesn't say it. 
best thing to do is find yourself another job, then say it. <laughs> say it on the way out the door. By the way, my idea is to keep, keep, to keep them porous to, to one another. Because without the one, you, the one, without the confessional traditions, what we're calling, what this conversation would not occur. Right? But without this proto-religious structure, um, these, these confessional traditions would calcify, rigidify. So, I would close as is appropriate at a Catholic university with a prayer. With the prayer, what for me is the prayer of all prayer. The first, last, and constant prayer. Which proceeds from the sentiment that the end of religion is endless, open endedness. The endless, open endless endedness of the to come. Endless exposure. Which leads to a prayer which is the next to the last line at the end of the New Testament. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Which in a proto-religious discourse would sound like, bien, oui, oui. Come, yes, 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 I said, yes. Come, hallelujah, yes, yes. Thank you very much.